Hi, everybody. I'm Sabri Beneshore from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholtz from Quartz. And this is Actuality. Hello. I'm David Bowie. I live down the road. Oh. Sir Percival lets me use his piano when he's not around. He's not around, is he? I can honestly say I haven't seen him, but come on in. Come in. I'm Bing. Oh, I'm pleased to meet you. This is my son's favorite. Do you know this one? Oh, I do indeed. It's a lovely thing. And that was uh, David Bowie just casually stopping by Bing Crosby's house for uh, their winter holiday special from 1970-something. Speaking of which, Tim, I have this uh, warm fire going. (laughs) How... How about that? You just happened to stop by. It's it's crazy that I'm here, Sabri. I'm I'm here to sing Christmas carols mainly, and so for the next hour, you'll just hear <laughs> the musical stylings of Tim and Sabri. No, you're you're not that unlucky. Yeah, but in, it is, in the it spirit is... of Bing Crosby and David Bowie meeting randomly to sing holiday songs together, we're going to take you on a on a holiday special where some some fan favorites of of episodes of your will come back and strut into our crackling fire living room to roast chestnuts, drink some eggnog, and tell us what's going on with the stories that they care about this year. Yeah, it is the end of the year, so we're taking a minute to look back at uh, some of the stuff we've talked about uh, and to check in to see, you know, what ever happened with those things. We're going to look at five uh, stories, four stories that we have covered previously, and then one more that we haven't. But the first thing that we're going to talk about today is an update on American Apparel. We uh, have an obsession, apparently, with bad bosses, <laughs> figuring out what makes them tick and why they're so terrible. Um, and one of the worst, probably, was Dove Charney, the uh, erstwhile CEO of American Apparel, uh, who was ousted earlier this year. And um, we actually spoke to his replacement, Paula Schneider, and now the company is bankrupt. This is one of our favorite stories this year because it touches on a lot of topics that are important to us, uh, management, psychology, design. Uh, manufacturing and globalization, jobs, all that good stuff. Um, And to dig into it, we have with us now our friend, Mark Bain. He's a reporter at Quartz who covers fashion. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me again. What happened at American Apparel? What happened to this turnaround project? It's trying to turn around a trend that's been in the process for, you know, years now. The company has seen sales dropping. They have really high interest debt piling up. They're facing these battles with Dove Charney, all these legal battles. Uh, It's costing them all these legal fees. At the end of the day, it just seemed a debt restructuring was probably the smartest way to go. Uh, And I'm curious if you think that Paula Schneider, the the new CEO, is this uh, sort of a result of decisions that she's made or is she just suffering under a really tough hand that she's been dealt? I think she's suffering under a tough hand that she's been dealt personally. Um, the company has been uh, dealing with debt for, for a while now, and then the the whole Dove Charney saga has kind of thrown its operations into disarray. If you, if you check the news, they're having um, all sorts of strikes with the workers. There is a loyal Charney contingent of workers that's protesting outside its L.A. factory all the time. Diehard Charney um, loyalists going down with <laughs> yeah, the ship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, you know, at the same time, they're... Their clothes just aren't selling the way they used to. We actually talked about the, this trend called the glass cliff where female executives get stuck with the worst turnarounds because boards only turn to them when it gets that bad. And uh, and that ends up hurting the record of the female CEOs. Is it all over for Schneider? 
I don't think so. Paula Schneider isn't done yet. Um, the the debt restructuring with the bankruptcy uh, could help the company a lot to kind of get things in order. They also have uh, very big, ambitious plans for the future. I think it's interesting that like one of their primary creditors refinancing them through this is Goldman Sachs. So if you have the power of Goldman Sachs behind your your rebirth, maybe that means something. And if you guys haven't been following, uh, Charney is apparently working with an investment bank uh, to try to take over the company again. So that'll be fun to watch. The last time you were on the show, uh, we were talking about fast fashion, which is sort of a different stripe from American Apparel, uh, and how they are using their far-flung global supply chains to make cheap clothes and drive up sales. Uh, American Apparel was actually one of the few, and in fact the largest, I believe, U.S. clothing manufacturer. Um, do their problems finally mean the end of you know clothing being made in the U.S.? I don't think it means the end of clothes being made in the U.S. I do think it suggests something about trying to make cheap clothing in the U.S. If you look at the wages, um, American Apparel says its sewers make about $25,000 a year. In Bangladesh, by comparison, the average sewer makes about $40 to $70 a month. If you're a U.S. clothing company and you are looking to make products as cheaply as possible, and a lot of places are, there's really just no comparison. It's going to be Asia. That said, L.A. has found a niche doing things like premium denim. So I think, you know, you'll see that kind of business continue to live on. What about American Apparel's clothing itself? I mean, is it just not cool anymore? I mean, do people you mentioned it's not selling as much. Is it just lost its edge? What is the deal? I think everyone is having a tough time competing with fast fashion companies. You can go to those places and get stuff that's more consistent with what's trending in fashion. Um, they're knocking off stuff that's on the runway and doing cheap versions of it. One other factor that might affect this making clothing in the U.S. calculus is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the big new free trade deal uh, that the U.S. is probably going to ratify sometime in the next year. Uh, What happens then if uh, trade barriers go down with countries like Vietnam? Vietnam is a really interesting case. Uh, Right now, uh, U.S like fashion company sourcing executives, according to a pretty big recent survey that I wrote about. Vietnam is their their top destination for sourcing in the future. Uh, not necessarily most of their clothing is going to be made there, but it's one of the places they're looking to move more operations to. As it gets cheaper to produce in Vietnam after the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, there's only more reason for them to go there. Uh, and it, it makes it you know that much harder to convince anyone to make stuff in the U.S. where the prices are higher. Um, If it's just that much easier to do it in Asia, then why not? All right. Uh, Mark Bain is a reporter at Quartz Covering Fashion. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks, Mark. While American Apparel insists that it's going to continue to make its clothes here in the U.S., pretty much everybody else uh, makes them elsewhere, especially in Asia. And Asia is actually where we're going to turn to next. Uh, One of uh, the things we touched upon this year is China and its island building in the South China Sea. China, uh, just to remind everybody, has been building islands uh, because it wants to. And it wants to claim as much of the South China Sea and as many little rocks in that water body as it possibly can, much to the chagrin and outrage of many of its neighbors. And we're going to invite uh, Gregory Poling, who is the director of the Asian Maritime Transparency Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, to explain to us exactly what's happened since last we checked in on this wild, uh, jingoistic skirmish. 
Hi, Greg. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. There were 2,000 acres of Manmade Island built six months ago. How much more area has China built up? Do we know? Well, not a ton more area. They've inched closer to 3,000, but the large-scale island building's done. What they're moving into now is building facilities, potentially militarizing these features. So they've gone from building the islands to building all the stuff that goes on the islands. Tensions were bad when they were starting. What are tensions like now? I think they're they're just about the highest we've seen in recent years. Uh, I mean, there's been a few times when they seized a feature from the Philippines in 2012 or when they put this deep water rig uh, on, on the Vietnamese waters uh, two years ago that, that they were quite high for a little while. But this is the most sustained level of, I think, fear, anxiety in the region about what China's long-term intentions are that we've seen. We can just name those countries, right? I mean, the countries that are, are numerous that are Let's concerned. Let's do the there's... countdown. We yeah. got the Philippines. Uh, yep. Top of the list, we've got Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, in a way Indonesia. They have a claim to the waters that overlaps China's, but they're not actually claiming any of the islands. And then you have China and Taiwan. Uh, The U.S. has done a couple things. It has struck a big new trade deal with a bunch of the uh, countries involved in this dispute. And it has also sent some of its military forces. It sent a uh, a naval ship and some... um, some long-range bombers to fly or sail by these islands that China claims, uh, kind of a show of force. Uh, what have those steps done uh, to change, uh, if at all? Well, it's interesting you bring up the Trans-Pacific Partnership, this 12-nation trade I deal. I love because the TPP. It's fantastic. I, I, did, I thought it was just me. The TPP, when you talk to Asian nations, especially Southeast Asian nations, they see this as part of the larger U.S. strategic, uh, the pivot, the rebalance, what have you, that the Obama administration has launched towards Southeast Asia, because for them, it's not just about U.S. military presence. It has to be about U.S. comprehensively being in the region. That includes economics. Most of these countries are overwhelmingly economically dependent upon China, which, of course, limits their ability to to move. So the more they can diversify, the more they can trade with the U.S. and get U.S. investment, the more room they have to pursue their own interests. The other thing you mentioned, the, the, the so-called freedom navigation operation with the U.S. naval destroyer or the flight of B-52s last month, both of those are part of a U.S. plan to continually assert what it sees as legal rights in these waters. China has built sandcastles out in the middle of the ocean. The U.S. and the international community at large say that's not okay, but it certainly doesn't give you any rights to tell us where we can fly, where we can sail, to restrict the rights of others. The U.S. is simply trying to assert that. You know, that's part and parcel of China's whole approach here is it's not not only is it trying to create facts on the ground, it's also trying to change the rules of the game when it comes to these tiny islands that they've created from almost nothing. How successful are they at changing the rules? Well, I think that depends on how the international community responds to this. So far, uh, if you ask Chinese uh, academics or policymakers, I bet they'd say they've been very successful. They've done something that is unprecedented and is illegal. You won't find a lawyer outside of mainland China, I think, at least not many, who are going to say that Beijing has a legal right to do this. If they can effectively uh, get it done, can effectively maintain uh, some form of control over these, though, without the international community robustly challenging, then the law won't mean a whole lot when it comes to the facts on the ground, which is exactly why the U.S. has committed to things like these freedom navigation operations, making it day in and day out clear that just because China wants to throw its weight around doesn't mean that international law no longer has value. 
because this is playing out uh, against the backdrop of uh, similarly vexing international law issues in Ukraine and Crimea, where Russia has been doing things that don't seem uh, all too kosher, and then the situation in the Middle East right now, which is extremely uh, variable and commanding, I think, a lot of the foreign policy mindshare. Has this issue in the South China Sea kind of moved to a back burner recently? I think from the U.S. perspective, South China Sea is getting more attention than it ever has before. It is not a acute crisis the way that the Middle East is or that Ukraine was, but it is certainly getting a lot more high-level focus, both in the administration and in Congress, than you've ever seen before. But for Asian states, the concerns, the constant concerns about U.S. staying power, about whether or not the U.S. will be distracted by crises elsewhere, are real. And the administration has been working quite hard, and with some success, to, to put those concerns to bed, to keep telling Asian nations that, yes, we, of course, have to keep one foot in the Middle East, and we have to pay attention to what's happening in the Ukraine and Europe, but we recognize that the 21st century is the Asian century, that our long-term interests lie on this side of the Pacific. One major moment in this whole dispute is expected to come up pretty soon, and that is China's uh, dispute with the Philippines. The Philippines basically took China to court uh, because China claimed a reef and built an island within what is universally almost accepted as Philippine waters, as Philippines' exclusive economic zone. What is going to happen in that case, and how important is it? Uh, well, we're definitely going to see a ruling of some kind in 2016. You're right that I think most people don't think that China has much of a leg to stand on here. But there, again, it's a legal issue. There are questions about jurisdiction. There might be some parts of the case that the court rules on and some that they don't. But I'm pretty confident that the core question the Philippines is asking is this so-called nine-dash line that China's drawn on maps and said outlines its claim, is that legal? Does that meet the minimum requirements of a maritime claim in the 21st century? And the court's going to say no, which is going to put China in a fairly awkward position. Now, Beijing's been perfectly clear. It doesn't accept the jurisdiction of this court. It's not taking part in the, in the proceedings. It's not going to listen. That's easy to say, though. Clearly, China's worried. If it wasn't actually worried about the case, it wouldn't be spending so much time trying to disprove it. There's going to be big reputational costs here. China is the number two power in the world, and its narrative is that we are a responsible rising power who deserves a bigger stake in the way international relations are done globally. It's hard to maintain that if you're also being seen as a rogue, as a bad player in the international system, and violating the treaty that you yourself signed. Gregory Poling is director of the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. You know, another big story that's bubbling up uh, and is likely to uh, probably very much erupt in 2016 is is Iran. Um, not only are sanctions very likely to be lifted soon, and uh, meaning more oil will be produced from Iran and sold, uh, more businesses will be able to get into Iranian markets. And it just so happens that uh, Tim, one of your colleagues, just got back from a trip there. Yes, Sabri, you are right. Editor-at-large of Quartz, Bobby Ghosh, just spent two weeks in Iran uh, doing some research, doing some reporting for us on its role in the region. Uh, and he made some friends, had some tea, got to know a little bit about what's going on, and has a story for us about one of the important people he met, uh, Grand Ayatollah in the city of Qom. 
Hi, I'm Bobby Ghosh. I am an editor at large at Quartz. I grew up in India, and uh, when I was five or six years old, uh, our upstairs neighbor went to Iran and and came back. Um, I used to play with his kids, and I I vividly remember all of us kids being herded into a room, the lights being turned down, and um, we were shown a slideshow of uh, Uncle Shah's trip uh, to Iran, and it was amazing. I, I still have vivid memories of color slides of Ishfahan. And for a for a six-year-old, the word foreign or abroad doesn't really mean very much, but that was the first time I heard those words being spoken. And it was the first time I think I became aware of the existence of an abroad, a, a foreign place, a place far away that was not my own country. And the first place uh, with which I associated foreignness was Ishfahan and, and Iran. And so it, it sort of lodged in my mind as a, a number one item on my bucket list. I've persistently tried uh, over the years to get in there and they kept saying no. But perhaps that boyhood sort of dream uh, uh, kept me going back and asking over and over again until I think I just wore them down. I was very aware of Jason Rezaian being in prison and lots and lots of Iranian journalists. Even in the past couple of weeks before I went on my trip, there were journalists being tossed into jail. I was very aware of that. But uh, the risk-reward calculus um, was was inescapable. I mean, I uh, the opportunity to go there at this particular time when there is just a chance of change um, with with the nuclear deal, the prospect of sanctions being um, lifted very soon, there was a sense, I had a sense anyway, that Iran is on a cusp of something. The city of great seminaries, the great uh, Islamic, Shia Islamic scholarship is Qum. It is a holy city. It is where scholars of uh, Shia Islam come to study, to become members of the ulema, which is the, the clerics, the, the clergy of Shia Islam. And the highest position you can acquire in Shiite clergy is that of Grand Ayatollah. Not a lot of foreigners get, in, foreign journalists anyway, non-believers, get an opportunity to hang out with uh, an Ayatollah, a Grand Ayatollah. And so I was absolutely thrilled uh, to have that opportunity. So we arrive in Qom and we, we, we set about looking for Grand Ayatollah Sanai's uh, office. And it's in a tiny, nondescript street. There's a small sign. It's, it, there was not a lot of ceremony. He sat down, looked at me and said, uh, let's go and let's start. Halfway into the interview, tea arrived. One of his office staffers came in with a tray of tea. He placed uh, a cup next to me and a little bowl of sugar cubes. He placed a a cup next to the Ayatollah and a little bowl of dried white mulberries. And I realized that the that Sanei was was using the, the mulberries as a kind of sweetener. He'd take a mulberry, bite into it, and then take a sip of tea and finish chewing the mulberry. He was paying attention to my consumption of the tea and he realized I wasn't taking the sugar. And at one point he stopped in the middle of his answer and said, well, why aren't you having sugar? And I said, I can't, I'm diabetic. Suddenly, he became very animated. He said, you know what? I'm diabetic too, and, and this is why I have these mulberries. You should have them. They're, they're good for you. They're good for diabetics. Um, and I was skeptical about that, but, you know, he's a grand ayatollah. You're not saying no to a grand ayatollah. And I tried one. And it was delicious. And uh, so 
while he went back to answering the questions, I sort of greedily dipped into his bowl of mulberries. At that point onwards, the, the, the tone of the interview changed. We became, we seem to have bonded over the, our, our sort of mutual uh, affliction, uh, diabetes, and our, our taste for dried mulberries. And, and he kept pushing that bowl towards me and encouraging me to eat more of them. And, and that was also coincidentally the point from which we began to discuss politics. And I think he was much more at ease from that moment onwards. And it was, his answers were much less practiced and much more sort of freeform. So there's a crucial election coming up in Iran in, at the end of February. In fact, there are two elections that are going to be held simultaneously for the first time. Elections to parliament and then elections to a much smaller body called the, the Assembly of Experts. And the Assembly of Experts, their main job is to pick and to monitor the supreme leader, uh, a role first held by Ayatollah Khomeini, currently held by Ayatollah Khamenei. Uh, The expectation is that during the course of the, the office of the next Assembly of Experts, Khamenei, who is in his 70s, will pass on and that Assembly of Experts will pick his successor, which is a crucial, crucial uh, moment uh, in Iran's future. And so these elections, therefore, are pivotal. If the assembly uh, is filled with uh, conservatives, as it traditionally has, then the choice of the next supreme leader will automatically be a conservative one. But many reformists and liberals and, and modernists in um, Iran are hoping that they can get more liberals and reformists into the assembly of experts, and then in turn that can influence the choice of the next supreme leader. Sane uh, has very strong views on this. He is a reformist. He thinks that the people who are currently occupying all these positions need a change uh, in their attitude towards their jobs. A lot of Iranians are very concerned that this time, uh, as before, the Guardian Council will simply nip the reformist movement in the bud by disqualifying candidates and making sure that only a handful of reformists are allowed to participate in the elections, that the majority of the seats, therefore, by default, will go to conservatives and hardliners. And I asked Sanei whether he had that fear, and he was quite blunt. He said, no, not only am I worried about that, I'm sure of that. But all the same, he felt that it was important for reformist candidates to apply for to stand for elections because he said uh, he said there was a political message to be sent even in defeat that if you applied in large numbers thousands and thousands of people applied and if the guardian council was seen to be disqualifying large numbers of reformists that in itself would send a message my visit there confirmed my sense that there is great ferment taking place and and that that the country is about to move in a new direction it's hard to know Uh, whether that will necessarily be in a positive direction, but there's a chance that that might happen, and I want to be, um, I want to want to chronicle that. Bobby Ghosh is the editor-at-large at at Quartz, and you can read his uh, stories about Iran and see some of the pictures, including uh, one of him and the Grand Ayatollah, at QZ.com. The eggnog at our party is spiked with exclusively Havana Club rum, which is a new thing we can get this year thanks to normalizing relations between the U.S. and Cuba. 
I went down to check out the scene in June, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, in fact, December 17th marked the one-year anniversary of the shocking announcement that the U.S. would normalize relations with Cuba. And uh, earlier this year, it was our very first episode. It was our uh, very first episode. You went to visit Cuba and see what the what, what was changing on the island. Yeah, and so to get an update, we got in touch with um, another great friend of the podcast, Alana Tumino. She's the director of the Cuba Working Group at the America Society forward slash Council of the Americas. Uh, hi, Alana. Hi, how are you? So, Alana, you just came back from Cuba uh, only a few weeks ago, and I understand it's still a little crazy trying to get down there. Well, I think yes and no. Um, I was pleasantly surprised at a few things about the trip. Um, This was one of the first trips in 2015 that I did without a larger business delegation, so I was planning my own travel. And it was actually the ease of which I was able to go online to book a ticket from JFK to Havana, which was a first for me. I had previously always been going from Miami. I didn't even have to actually buy my visa ahead of time. I got to the airport. I couldn't I couldn't find the actual charter terminal because I'm used to seeing winding lines of folks in the Miami airport with huge packages of bicycles and appliances and other goods. In JFK, there was probably about four people in front of me in line. That was surprising and, and, and pleasantly very uh, appealing to me. Um, you know, upon arriving in Havana, I think the ease at which you can still really feel like you can travel freely and you can connect and you can pay for things um, in a way that we're used to in other countries really just isn't isn't happening on the ground yet. I was told that I'd be able to pay for my hotel with my MasterCard, which I was skeptical about, but I brought it down with me anyway, and I went to pay for the hotel, in which case it was very much clearly not you know, allow a, a transaction that could be completed. So I had to pay with cash. Well, it wasn't not completable because they like didn't have the machine or they couldn't get the machine to work right. Or is that it just came back and MasterCard was like, uh, we don't do Cuba. No. So basically what happened was MasterCard announced that you would be able to use your credit card in Cuba. They made this large announcement um, in, in the spring of last year. Um, and what's been happening now is there's two issues. I think the banking infrastructure in Cuba is not there yet. A lot of transactions are still being done in cash. However, you know, people from other countries have been able to use a credit card. Um, our issue has been that we needed a financial bank um, to be able to back all the MasterCard transactions, and that had still been working out slowly. And so actually just last week there was an announcement that um, Stonegate Bank would now be issuing MasterCard debit cards for the island that you can actually take down with you to be able to use them on the island. But prior to that, um, there was still a lot of issues in terms of really being able to use your MasterCard on the island, even though um, it was allowable. And and that's all because of still businesses are, are uncertain about how they're going to be treated under the U.S. regulations and the Cuban ones, I suppose. It's still very... Uh, so very fraud, I think, for financial institutions. Right? Absolutely. I think there's still a lot of risk associated with wanting to even look at the Cuban market right now if you're a bank or a financial institution because of the decades of fines that would be imposed to banks if they were doing any kinds of transactions with Cuba. That has changed now. Cuba is no longer on the state sponsor of terrorist list. Um, we have more relaxed restrictions in terms of what you can and cannot do in terms of traveling and, and buying things in Cuba. But that still needs to be translated over into the financial institution community. One problem, which has been a major issue for especially the Cuban American community in Florida, has been over confiscated property. That is property that the Castro government seized when it took power. But negotiations just started uh, on that point. How are they going? It's going to be a very long and complicated process, I think. Um, You have a certain number of claims from the United States side. These are both corporate and individual claims, around 6,000 or so. And we're looking at about $2 billion in uh, in claims worth of $2 billion. Um, But with accrued interest, it's it's about $8 billion or so on the U.S. side. On the flip side, the Cubans are charging that they lost 
anywhere from 120 billion to 180 billion uh, for damages incurred under the embargo. And so they have a whole list of of economic damages that they want to be settled from the U.S. side. So it's going to be kind of a negotiation of sorts to see how we're going to settle these claims, how it's going to be done. Is this going to be a piecemeal kind of one-by-one approach, or is it going to be a much larger, you know, let's settle all these claims at once in, in a certain kind of deal. But it's something that you know, I think this year we've seen a lot of progress on a lot of other issues. Um, and this has been kind of the big elephant in the room that we talk about doing business in Cuba. We talk about normalized relations, yet we still have these huge unsettled claims on both the Cuban and the U.S. side that need to be settled. Looking ahead to next year, then, you know, we have some signs of progress. We have some signs of, uh, you know, challenges. What do you think we're going to see in Cuba and U.S. relations in 2016? What we've seen this year has really been, I think, incredible. There's there's so many issues that still remain on the table. We're talking about claims. We're talking about having an embargo in place. But we've been able to open embassies. Cuba's been removed from the state sponsor of terrorist list. Um, we've had rounds of regulatory changes. We have businesses going all the time to Cuba to really try to understand the opportunities that exist. So I think what we're going to see is, is, I think, an expansion of this. You know, there's momentum in Congress right now, bipartisan momentum with both Republicans and Democrats coming out publicly saying that they support an ending to the embargo. They are introducing bills in the House, in the Senate to uh, lift restrictions on trade, to lift restrictions on travel. They're garnering more and more co-sponsors and signatories to these bills. So I think we're going to see that momentum continue in Congress because people are really coming out and saying very publicly in these polls that you see, we support an opening to Cuba. We want to be able to travel there even more so than we can now. We want to be able to do business there. And so, you know, the opinion polls are saying that they want normalization beyond just diplomatic normalization. And I think these Congress people are finally listening and, and taking the call. All right. Alana Tumano is head of the Cuba Working Group at the Americas Society Council of the Americas. Thanks, Alana. Thanks so much for having me. You know what the ultimate embargo is? It's gravity. Gravity is the real embargo on humanity right now. Because <laughs> we're trying to get into space. And it's been a huge year for commercial space as we seek to break the surly bonds of gravity. And it seems like we're on the cusp of a breakthrough where the cost of getting stuff into space is going to be low enough that people can actually do cool things and not just like crackpot schemes or alien fantasies. And uh, space is something that we have visited on this podcast before. Tim, you have written a ton about space. And so has Kimberly Adams at Marketplace. And so uh, we have everyone here again. Let's to swap some space tales yeah. in front of the roaring fire. Kimberly Adams is one of Marketplace's Washington, D.C.-based reporters. Hi, Kimberly. Hi, guys. Uh, Kimberly, there are so many good storylines in the space world uh, this year. You know, my favorite is the one between SpaceX and Blue Origin. And I guess even uh, the investment banks on Wall Street are taking notice of this. Yeah, Goldman Sachs actually put out some guidance for clients uh, heading into 2016, saying the space race is reigniting and talking about not a space race between governments, the old style U.S. and Soviet Union space race, but this time between private companies, Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon and his Blue Origin company, as well as 
Elon Musk, the owner of Tesla and PayPal and all of these things, but also the owner of SpaceX. And these two companies are really having at it in the space realm, trying to be the first to do a lot of things. And they're going kind of going tit for tat, one advancing in one area and the other advancing in the other. Jeff Bezos got an edge on Elon Musk uh, recently by being able to land one of the rockets that they had already sent up. The importance of that being that if you can bring a rocket back safely, you can reuse it, saving billions of dollars. That's something SpaceX has been trying to do for a while, but hasn't quite been able to manage. Didn't SpaceX's rocket explode this summer, which would be it would be saving negative money. So my favorite thing about this this space race is that it's also playing out on Twitter and SpaceX has been <laughs> having a tough year because their rocket, as the recess did blow up this summer. But in spectacular fashion, captured on YouTube and replayed endlessly. And actually, we are expecting uh, the day after this episode airs, they're going to probably try again to fly. So we'll see if they can do it. Um, but when uh, Jeff Bezos announced that his company, Blue Origin, had managed to land this rocket booster, uh, Elon Musk immediately started tweeting at him uh, really salty about the whole thing, being like, actually, Jeff. We've sort of done that, and ours fly higher and much faster and trying to put him in his place. It's like increasingly personal between these two billionaires, even as their companies are competing to do this. It's called Astro Shade. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, as everyone is trying to make space cheaper, how close are we to actually going anywhere interesting besides, like, flying up and then being weightless a little bit like they do in the planes for rent in Russia these days? Well, funnily enough, like one of the obstacles to actually doing anything in space isn't like technical. It's actually legal. Um, but actually, the U.S. Congress did something important uh, recently that might make it possible for us to go mine asteroids. And I know, Kimberly, you, you covered that. Yeah, it's a really fascinating story. It's called the Space Act of 2015. And President Obama signed it into law just before Thanksgiving in the midst of a bunch of other laws. And so it kind of went under the radar at first. But mining companies and particularly companies that want to mine resources in space are really excited about it. Because what this law says you can do is if U.S. companies go into space and mine resources from asteroids or the moon, for example... They own those resources. Now, here's why that needed to be put into legislation. There's an international treaty that says space is an international commons, kind of like the law of the seas, that this open area like Antarctica, for example, you can't claim it. It's international commons. However... If, even if you can't claim that land, this or that rock, if it's an asteroid, this law says you can at least keep whatever resources you mine from it, and it gives sort of a legal structure for that. Since this law has been passed, there's been quite a bit of pushback, especially from European space agencies and European legal experts. They say, well, you can't do that. That's violation of the treaty. You, it says you can't own the land. This is just a loophole. And so it's already causing some controversy. Several of these space agencies are saying, look, this is not going to fly. It's not fair. And also, since some of these companies, they it's arguable how close they are to actually doing this because you have to get the infrastructure up there. It costs money to launch rockets. And as you mentioned, several rockets tend to be blowing up lately. And so we're, it's not clear how close we are to this, although the companies involved say that they're ready to go. I mean, even before we get to the point where we're mining anything, I mean, don't we just have to get people up there commercially to begin with? How close are we to doing that, even just for tourism? 
for space tourism, your best shot looks to be Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin. They say they're going to start taking people up in that rocket, but they don't have a, a real timeline yet of when they're going to start doing that. In terms of people, right now, SpaceX, once again, and Boeing are in a race to bring people, to bring astronauts to the International Space Station. Um, and they're going to try and do that by 2017. And this year, they actually both tested their space capsules, uh, the Dragon 2 for SpaceX and Boeing's Orion, to get them ready to do this. And it'll be the first time ever a private uh, spaceship has carried astronauts. And that's why it's really interesting watching these companies sort of play against each other, not just SpaceX and Blue Origin, but also the more established partners like Boeing and Lockheed, which have this company together called United Launch Alliance that's up until recently had kind of a monopoly on launching secure military satellites into space. And so now you have sort of the old defense industry and the new tech industry competing against each other to get actual people into space. And even though, you know, you can make a pretty penny sending rich people up into space for four minutes at a time so they can float around and take pictures, the real money will come from these government contracts. Well, so um, you guys, you two are the space experts. I mean, what do you think we are going to see in 2016? I mean, the most fabulous space prediction that could happen is that either SpaceX or Blue Origin actually succeeds in doing this reusable rocket thing, like commercially, while actually launching a satellite or some other mission. Uh, and, and proves that they can do it regularly and consistently, and it will make space access so much cheaper that all kinds of business plans that were previously kind of kooky might make sense. And it could happen in the next three months, or never, because I will note last year around this time I predicted SpaceX would do it in 2015. They haven't yet, and the rocket blew up. <laughs> but they could do it before the end of the year. Prediction is not dead yet. What are you, Kimberly? Well, I'm a political reporter, and so I am looking ahead and seeing a lot more attention being focused on the commercial space industry. The fact that Congress moved very quickly and in a bipartisan way to pass this new law, and and President Obama signed it, and now European regulators are looking very carefully at this. The technology is moving much faster than the regulations surrounding it. And so as more and more private companies are launching things into space and trying to set up actual realistic space industries, and we're not talking sci-fi anymore, I think that the business community as well as the legal community and governments around the world are really going to start trying to hammer out what the rules of space are going to be. I mean, I did a series earlier this year about orbital debris and the fact that With so many companies launching things into space, some of them die in space, and that leaves debris up there that can damage other assets. And so there eventually will have to be some sort of coming together to say, all right, this is how we're going to operate as an international community in this new frontier. All right. Well, thanks, you two. Thanks, Kimberly, so much. Kimberly, I want to know what your prediction is for space in 2016. Oh, my prediction for space Uh in 2016. I predict that Kimberly Adams will perhaps come and visit us again to talk about space in the new year, as she did on our last uh, previous episode, talking about space junk and the uh, trials and tribulations of junk in space. I'm in on that prediction. Kimberly Adams is one of Marketplace's Washington, D.C.-based reporters. Thanks again, Kimberly. Thanks, guys. So, Sabri, this is the end of 2015 end of this podcast episode hope you enjoyed this trip across the breadth of the stories we're trying to cover here at actuality 
with many more to come next year. We're well, out of eggnog. We're out of eggnog. Carolers have all gone home. Everyone's We put out the tree. Already. The tree's not on fire anymore. That's good. Mm-hmm. Covered that one. And uh, not going to get the wine out of the white carpet, unfortunately. But wait, wait. One last surprising discovery of the year. That's right. Hold on tight, guys. Because at Quartz, we cover surprising discoveries. These are the news items that make you raise your eyebrows. And uh, today's surprising discovery is burning with the fire of love that we have for our listeners. Uh, And it is in the holiday spirit. I refer, of course, to a silo of sweet potatoes in North Carolina that has been burning since the day after Thanksgiving. That's late (laughs) November. And still burns at press time. Turns out burning compressed dried yams is incredibly difficult for firefighters to handle. Why are the yams dried? They're drying them. Uh, Natural Blend Vegetable Dehydration is the name of this company, and they are uh, trying to prepare these dehydrated yams for sale. But unfortunately, things have gone terribly, (laughs) terribly wrong. And it's now all on fire. So it's burning with the holiday spirit. Yes, but no one is injured, and there seems to be no uh, health threat to nearby residents, firefighters say. But the AP is not sure when they're going to be able to put this out. I think they should get loudspeakers and play holiday-themed music around the fire so people can toast marshmallows around. It's just very festive. That's the holiday spirit, man. I like your style. Yeah. I like where you're going with that. All right, well, we are out of time. Um, if you want to learn anything more about Cuba, Iran, China's American apparel space, or burning sweet potatoes, or anything else happening in the economy today, check out marketplace.org and qz.com. And while you're at court, sign up for the Daily Brief because it is the perfect email way to start your day. And you can uh, reach out to us uh, on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Tree, and Tim is at Tim Fernholtz with a Z. Uh, we owe enormous debts of gratitude to our hardworking and indefatigable producer, Claire Tennisketter. We owe uh, many thanks to Jake Gorski, who made our theme song. And we owe deference and hours of work each day <laughs> to our overlords at Quartz and Marketplace. We want to wish you all a very happy new year and a happy holiday season. You've been listening to Actuality, the Marketplace Quartz podcast. Happy holidays. Take care. <laughs>